Bible expresses exactly what God wants us to know. This is the miracle of the divine inspiration of the Bible. God has spoken through Scripture. The Bible is the authority for the church concerning Christian faith and ethics because God is truth. Psalm 119, 160, John 17, 17, 2 Timothy 2, 15, Titus 1, 2. The message of Scripture is true and reliable. Jesus affirmed this inerrant nature of the Bible. Quote, thy word is truth, unquote, John 17, 17. Scripture cannot be broken, John 10, 35. God also continues to speak to readers of the Bible today. As we dig into the Bible with an open heart and is willing to obey God's message, the Holy Spirit helps us apply the timeless teachings of Scripture to our personal life situation. As we get to know who God is and how He works by reading the Word, we grow in faith and learn to trust Him in the midst of our daily struggles. Unfortunately, many people in Western society seek knowledge of God through their experience. The cultural assumptions of relativism and pluralism stress that each individual is the authority of truth for himself. The resulting danger is that we stand in judgment over the Bible and decide what we consider acceptable according to our cultural ideas of truth and morality. These ideas are increasingly common in Christian circles as well. Many people want God to speak privately and personally to them. Thus, their experiences become the final measure of divine truth. Some people even expect that God will give them new revelation through prophecies, dreams, and visions. While God may at times work through personal experiences such as this, His normal method of communicating His truth is through His written word. Since all scripture is divinely inspired truth, anything that God communicates through these subjective experience will be consistent with the revelation He has already given to the church in His written word. Thus, scripture is the final authority and the measure of any alleged prophecy or vision. If we do not keep Scripture as a touchstone, we can easily be misled by our own subjective experiences, desires, emotions, even evil spiritual forces. Basically, he's saying the Bible is the bottom line, right? If you think you know something, check it versus the Word of God. If it doesn't line up, let it go. The Word of God holds true. Okay, at this time, we'll go into worship. We'll do that video at the inspirational moment time. If I could interrupt. Oh, yes. Our pastor just got to do the proper reason he did it. Anyway, many of you here today, because your family, uh, our pastor, they had a birthday a couple days ago. So, uh, in the way of uh, presenting something to our pastor for his birthday, I give you the freaking print of God. Oh, wow. Which has. Uh, basically, it's God's word in a fingerprint, and it's uh, one one verse from every book from every book of the Bible. Thank you, and uh, happy birthday! Thank you very much. That's awesome. Thank you. I love that. That's cool. You know, this is my fingerprint of God picture. Pick this up.
He is, He is, He is the Prince of Peace, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the Great I Am. He is Alpha. He is Omega. He is God. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is King. He is better than anything the world has to offer. Listen, church, our hope has a name. Our peace has a name. Our love has a name. Our joy has a name. Our confidence has a name. Our life has a name. And our movement that cannot be stopped has a name. In church, what is that name? Jesus. Let's stand and worship the holy name of Jesus. Not necessarily the message he was trying to portray, but the message I got out of that is, who are we to complain? The titles that we have, the things that we have to do, when he's done it all already. All we have to do is lean on him and let him help us, and there's nothing that we can't get through. That's me. <laughs> All right, who else got something? All right, huh? Okay. So at home, I have a little card table and apple tree, and it's about this man has a lovely apple tree, but one day a horrible storm comes and strikes the tree with lightning. And then Sometimes they just say that just because they feel left out. There's a lot of people that say that say that just because they are left out. So, and then the other one is that sometimes we can make God, some, we make God feel like that everything we put in with us to help us get through has just gone away. Like it's been removed from your life. That's interesting. That's where it ties in with my sermon today. Good stuff. All right, others? lights or anything on, but but there was a semi-truck sitting in the road, and I didn't think anything of it. He didn't have lights on or anything, no hazards, so I just thought, you know, hey, this semi-truck just pulled out of this factory that's over there. 
and we went over these railroad tracks, and I happened to sneeze and look away for like a second. And then next thing you know, that semi-truck was like 10 feet in front of me. And out of just pure reflexes, because I noticed there was another car coming in the other lane, so I couldn't go that way, so I turned and went off the road. After slamming on the brakes, I go off the road, come back on the road, and the fun, I, like to me, it was just absolutely funny. Jason was playing on his phone in the passenger seat. I mean, if we would have hit the semi, I was doing probably 50 mile an hour. I mean, it would have, it would have crushed my car because I didn't know the semi truck was stopped. Apparently, he was like at a complete stop, and I didn't know this because there was no lights on this truck at all. There's not even anyone in it. And yeah, we said he didn't even see anybody in the truck. But anyway, so I get back on the road and Jason looks up from his phone, looks at me and just goes, nice save. Like absolutely calm, didn't freak out. Like, and I didn't freak out because I, it's, I it, that kind of stuff doesn't freak me out necessarily. But like after I got home and I thought about it and I was like, this popped into my head too. When Jesus was on the boat and the storm, everyone was freaking out, but Jesus wasn't. And it brought to mind that, you know, in all situations, we can always find calm in the storm. Because we all have those parts in our life where we struggle, but we can still find calm in the storm. Through your busy life, through your busy schedule, whatever it is, you can still find calm in that storm. But the only way to do that is you have to look to God to do that. Amen. That's a very good word. All right. RJ, how about you pray for us as we transition tithes and offerings and into the rest of the service? Can you do that? Yeah. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time together. Thank you for uh, allowing everyone to be here. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you for looking out for me because Friday could have been a very, very bad day. If that, that, was, that was definitely you that did that because I, I don't... I don't think that I would have stayed calm otherwise, but God, I thank you for everything you've done. I thank you for everything you're doing, and thank you for everything that you're going to do. Um, God, just be with everyone here. Uh, touch their hearts. Let them grow a little closer to you, God. Um, be with Dan as he brings the message. Be with the tithes and offering that they get used to glorify your kingdom. And uh, just again, Lord, I thank you for everything that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.
to exhaustively, because that's what the Lord did to me, look at a very important topic, at the first of which you may go, oh, I already knew that. But by the time we're done, I think you're going to see some things, I think, I hope you're going to see some things that I saw that were pretty stinking cool. All right? So first of all, you do realize, I think we can probably agree, that bad things happen to good people. You've probably heard that saying. Uh, it is definitely biblical. Uh, the whole book of Job is bad things happen to good people. Now, before we get into that, though, I want you to realize that Bad and good are somewhat subjective, right? We're all kind of bad, right? So it's fleshly nature, sin, everybody has sin, all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. Um, and so bad and good are kind of subjective. But the truth is, there are good people. Not good in the sense that they would get to heaven, but people who do good things, right? People who help you, people who like you, people who give you gifts, or people who come along and fix your car when it breaks down. People who, there are people who do good things. And... Yet, bad things happen to good people. But today, we're going to reverse the saying, good things happen to bad people. That makes me chafe right off. People who are evil and wicked, I see God as just and holy, and they should get what they deserve. I think God should put them in their place. In fact, I could be very easily uh, equated to the sons of thunder who would have said for those villages that did not receive Jesus, like, Lord, let's just call fire down from heaven. And destroy those villages because they wouldn't receive your teachings. Good things happen to bad people. That's the reality. Grab your Bibles if you would and go with me to our text for the day. We will use our Bibles quite a bit. I hope you brought your Bible with you today. If you didn't and you have a notepad, you can write down the references and look them up later. If you didn't do that, this is on Facebook Live right now, and will come out hopefully on podcast on rss.com tomorrow, God willing. I've been trying to get them out by Monday. And you can get the references there or listen to this sermon again and study it if you want, if the Lord moves in your heart to do so. The reference for today is Acts 14. Amen. Amen. All right. So it's a short passage of Scripture in which a bizarre event occurs. And then we're going to drill down on just really two verses of it. So it's 14, beginning in 14, is where I'm going to read. And here's what happens. Basically, the apostles Paul and, uh, and his friend Barnabas uh, are preaching, and the crowds decide that they themselves are sort of like the gods come, as representatives Zeus, uh, Hermes, whatever, and they decide they're going to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And of course, Paul and Barnabas don't want that. They're followers of Jesus. And so in verse 14, this is what it says. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven 
and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. So back up for a moment into the text, if you would. As, look at verse uh, 15. They said, well, we are we're but men. Why are you going to do this? We are but men. And we come and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So right there, I want you to see that God created everything and then God allowed a certain kind of thing. Right? So the first point is that God created everything and God allowed a certain kind of thing. God created the earth. And in the earth is an amazing testimony for God all by itself. Do you realize just how delicately balanced creation is? I'm going to give you some examples. This is not my writing. Uh, it comes from a gentleman who's done quite a bit of study on this. The sustainability for life on earth. The precise rate of the earth's rotation, if it had been one-tenth its present rate, the length of our days and nights would have been increased ten times. Our vegetation would burn up during long days, while at nights would bring such low temperatures that any plant life which survived the day would be sure to freeze. If it was just one-tenth different from what it is. The earth is just the right size. The physical size of the earth is just the right size to support life as we know it. If the earth were as small as the moon, its gravity would be one-sixth its present force, unable to hold either atmosphere or water. If the earth's diameter were doubled, the force of gravity would be so doubled and the atmosphere would be so compressed that its pressure would be increased from 50 to 30 pounds per square inch, and this would seriously affect all life. If our earth were increased... To the size of the sun, while retaining its present density, gravity would be increased some 150 times, and this would increase atmospheric pressure to over a ton per square inch, which would crush literally everything. The Earth's crust is just the right size. If the Earth's crust had been only 10 feet thicker, the metallic elements in the crust would have combined with all the free oxygen in the atmosphere, ruling out the possibility of all animal life. The moon is the right distance from the Earth. At 239,000 miles away from the Earth, if it were 50,000 miles closer, the waters of the seas would submerge all of the continents twice a day, which would be hard to survive. The moon, though the moon is only relatively close to Earth, the surface temperature varies each 15 lunar days from a height, this is on the moon, of 214 degrees Fahrenheit above zero to a low of 243 degrees Fahrenheit below zero, even though it's only 239,000 miles away. Which you would say, that's a lot of miles. But when you think about the universe, not so much, right? The atmosphere is perfect to sustain life, having just the right amount of nitrogen and oxygen. Too much more oxygen could possibly ignite, could, could just cause chemical reactions with all kinds of things that are in the crust of the Earth. The angle of the Earth is just right for us to survive. The Earth is tilted on an axis, which gives ample time for the rays... Uh, for us to raise the necessary supply of food in the seasons that, as we have them. But if it was different, our seasons could be so short or so long. During the winter, in most areas anywhere where winter exists, the soil sits idle, soaks up moisture, and increases its fertility. The atmosphere of the earth serves as a protective blanket to shield us from deadly radiation. In addition, our atmosphere is just dense enough to protect the earth from some 20 million meteors that enter the atmosphere daily. Did you know that 20 million meters enter, 20 million meteors enter the Earth's atmosphere daily? 
and the atmosphere is just dense enough to protect us from that. These meteors, which travel at the speed of about 30 miles per second, would otherwise strike the Earth, and such impact would endanger all life. It is no coincidence that the Earth is made perfectly to sustain life. God did that. You want to deny the existence of God? You are literally denying common sense. Examine the universe, examine the Earth. Everything within the reach of as far as man has ever gone, even with the Hubble telescope, does not match the criteria of the Earth, and only the Earth can thus far sustain life. Does it mean that nothing anywhere else ever had life on it? Does it mean that there never could be life anywhere else? Uh, Billy Graham was quoted as saying there probably is life anywhere else, but it does, somewhere else, but it doesn't matter if there is, because God orchestrated the Earth perfectly to make mankind in His image. And therefore, we have survived to this day. God created. But not only did God create an incredible creation that we now live in and get the benefit of, but on top of that, God allowed something. He allowed. He allowed man to stray from his perfect plan for what man was going to be. He allowed man free will to make a choice to find his own way. And here, Paul tells them that in the former days, God allowed this. He allowed people to seek out their own way. It says, and in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations, and that translation there into English is one of two possibles, all the nations or essentially all people or all individuals to go their own way. But then it says, yes, he created and he allowed, even though he allowed he did not leave himself without a witness. Look at verse 17. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So even though God allowed the nations to go their own way, he preserved his witness inside that bubble. Creation is a witness, as I said already, but on top of that, God preserved his own witness. He was doing something. What do you think the word doing means? It says he was doing it. He was doing something, always has been. Jesus said, my father has been working from that day until this one and will be until that one. God was always doing something. And what is God doing? He's doing good. Paul breaks it down this way. He was doing good by, one, giving rain from heaven. Anybody here like to eat? No rain from heaven, no eats. The person that will get out of bed tomorrow morning and molest a child will eat today, most likely. God is providing blessings in the form of rain from heaven and giving fruitful seasons to the wicked, to those who refuse his existence. Those who live 80 years saying there is no God their entire life will still eat and drink and be blessed. They will still have the suns and the rains to shine, upon, to shine upon them and to pour out upon them in this lifetime because God is good. He is giving rain from heaven in fruitful seasons. More so, it says, he satisfies you with food and your hearts with gladness. As I was writing this, I was thinking about how when I was in high school, I didn't know Jesus. I believed that there probably was a God. But I didn't know Jesus. I wasn't saved. He said, not the Holy Spirit in me. I was an ordinary teenager. Now, I thought I was sneaky. I thought I was ugly. I thought I was struggling to grow up and become a man and failing, basically. I had a lot of negative self-esteem. But the bottom line is, I was living. I had a life. 
And I got together to play a game with some of my friends, and we played until it was 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. I remember many instances we played until it was almost the middle of the night, or it was the middle of the night. It was the next day even sometimes. The sun would come up before we'd quit playing games together in high school. And after about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, you know what happened? You ever stay up really late after a long day? Suddenly, everything seems funny. They call it being punch drunk. And I remember a number of times, and we didn't drink. There was no alcohol involved. But I remember a number of times somebody would tell a joke or we'd start punning. I love to pun. I've always loved that. The, the sort of tricky nature of punning kind of enchants me. And we would start punning and we'd start telling jokes and we would laugh. And we'd have six, seven, eight people in the room in the middle of whatever we were playing or whatever, and we were laughing. And we were laughing so hard that I was literally... I, it was, there was a, a friend of mine who was there and he... he Put, he had a sweatshirt on, and he put his arms inside the sweatshirt, and then he put them out through the wrong sleeves. So he had his right arm and his left sleeve, and his left arm and his left sleeve. And we were laughing, and we were joking. And in the middle of us laughing and joking, and everything was funny, he, he stood up. He was sitting on a footstool, actually, because we didn't have enough chairs for everybody. And he stood up, and he said, Danger! Danger, Will Robinson! And we're all already laughing so hard, and we laughed so hard, and he laughed so hard, he fell over. And because his arms were in the wrong sleeves of his T-shirt, or his sweatshirt, he couldn't catch himself, and he fell down, and he hit himself in a place that people don't like to hit themselves, on the edge of the footstool that he'd been sitting on. And now everyone in the room is laughing, and he's laying on the floor laughing. God has given us gladness. The truth is, you don't have to be saved to be glad. Anybody here ever eat a a good a pizza that just really tasted good. You went, man, this is good. And a rush of flavor in your heart is pounding. You're like, yes, this is good. Or a T-bone steak maybe with just the right seasonings on it. There is gladness in the world and it is given by God. Which is awesome. And yet, very problematic. Because, and we come to the third, place, third point where we're going to drill down kind of heavily. The goodness of God can be used to reinforce bad behavior. When I was a teenager, I was a liar. I'd been trained pretty good to be a liar. And I would tell a lie about where I had been or what I had done or whether I had done my homework or not or whether I had said something that a teacher alleged I had said. I would tell a lie. And then later that day, an hour later, a few hours later, I would come in my room, and I'd come in the room where my mom's cooking or something, and say, hey, mom, what you making for dinner? And I'd talk to her like everything was normal. And if she talked back to me like everything was normal, and she said, well, I'm making this for your dad, I'm making this for you, and, and uh, we're going to have a great meal. And my mom was sort of like a um, chef of a fast food restaurant because she would literally make an entree for my dad, and my dad didn't like it. She'd make an entree for me uh, or my brother, and if one of us didn't like the second one she made and, one of us, and we still didn't like the first, she'd make a third one. So we'd have three entrees at dinner at night, and, and we have leftovers for days. We have three entrees, and then she'd make a vegetable. And if my, bro- if my brother didn't like that vegetable, she'd make another vegetable. We'd have like seven vegetables and three entrees at dinner, and she'd be in the kitchen cooking for two hours. And if I went in the kitchen and she said, well, I'm making meatloaf, the kind you don't like. I said, what else are you making? She said, that's it. I'd be like, uh-oh, she didn't believe my lie. See, if... When people reward you with kindness, when they do good towards you, you have every reason to believe that they are favoring you, that they appreciate what you've done, that they recognize you, they see you. The appreciation and the encouragement that comes out of that is solid. But when they go, hmm, just the kind you don't like, you go, oh, I did something wrong. 
But God is blessing people all the time. God is filling hearts with gladness all the time. God is sustaining people and feeding them all the time. And so it's very easy for them to think, well, what I'm doing must basically be okay because God is blessing me. This is the love of God carried out in His kindness and His mercy toward people. And then they go, oh, I'm good. They get a little silver And then the next thing you know, they make that money into an idol. God blesses them, provides them what they need, and they make that into an idol, and they begin to worship the money rather than the God who allowed it, the God who sent it. This is the very plight of mankind. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and they were allowed to touch every tree. Don't let Eve's words fool you. They could have touched every tree. In fact, it was their job to tend every tree, including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of eternal life. They would tend every tree in the garden. They just weren't supposed to eat of those two trees until God specifically released them to do so. All the hard work was good for them. They, they, they weren't tired. They weren't hurting it wasn't a problem. They had the perfect situation. They had gladness in their heart. You think Adam experienced gladness when he looked at Eve and said, this is bone of my bone here. This is flesh of my flesh. Heck yeah, he was glad. Eve was glad to be created and she was glad to be with Adam. They had the fruit of the land and they had gladness. And out of that, they thought, well, there's a tree we can't eat off of. And they listened to the idea that eating off of that tree might make them like God. They thought, well, God loves us. He's not going to chastise us. He's not going to correct us. It's not going to be a problem if we do what we shouldn't do. Even though the serpent painted a bad picture of God. And I submit to you that those people are in the world now and they're saying, well, I want what I want, but God doesn't want me to have it. But my record with God is he always gives me what I need. So I'm going to take what I want based on the fact that he loves me and is kind and merciful toward me. You see how easy it is for people to fall into thinking the goodness of God authorizes them and reinforces their bad behavior. Then alerted to God's plans and methods, they can hardly be dissuaded from doing what they have now chosen to do. Notice in this passage that we're reading here that it says, and yet God did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In 18 it says, and even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. After it was brought to their attention that the very message of the people that they were trying to now worship and sacrifice to, the very message of Paul and Barnabas was that the people needed to repent away from false worship, away from sacrificing to things that should not be sacrificed to, and away from sacrificing at all, really. The very message that they were preaching, and the people still could hardly be restrained from sacrificing to them. And Paul would, a little while later, give a more maybe developed speech on this same topic. And if you're following along in your Bibles, you can flip over to Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. Now this is in Athens, and Paul is by himself. I love it when a man has to give a speech by himself. If you're a man in the room, you know what that's like. You've got to talk up, you've got to speak up and say the right thing, even though you're all alone. 
And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, so this is like a Colosseum kind of thing with men sitting on bleachers and standing around, and they're all looking at him now. It says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. By the way, how does someone get to creating an altar to an unknown God? Remember, all creation has a witness and a testimony. Anyone can look at the way creation was designed and go, someone did that. And so they had an altar for an unknown God. And Paul says, what therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God. The whole purpose of it was that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. In other words, drop all that other stuff and turn to God because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's a much more intense summary of what Paul was trying to say to them while they were trying to sacrifice to him. This goodness of God that you have experienced can be used to reinforce your bad behavior, but don't allow it. Do not allow it. Alerted to God's plans and methods, they could hardly be dissuaded from continuing in their own way. But don't be like them. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Beginning in verse 43, 543. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he himself, for he causes his son, that's the sun in the sky, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, the irony of this, by the way, in modern day, is that we think of this all wrong. We've got this verse all wrong. We think that the sun is the good stuff because we want to go to the beach. We think that the rain is the bad stuff because we don't want to get rained on. But actually, that's the opposite. They were an agricultural society. They were looking for the rains to make sure their their crops didn't dry in the drought. You see? They wanted the rain so they could grow their crops. And too much sun would kill their crop. But it doesn't matter which way you see it. God makes the sun and the rain, the good and the bad, to come down on, what did he say? The righteous and the unrighteous. A little further, in 46, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? That's a rhetorical question. To which the answer is, none. 
If you love those who love you, what reward you have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? In other words, even the sinners and the unrighteous and the bad people of the world love their own family, their own kids, whatever. Such as they love, they love in their own definition of love, but such as they love, they love their own family and their own people. But you, he's implying, should reach out and love everyone, even your enemies, even those who are wicked, even those who are wrong, even those who are bad, because that's what God does. He says in 47, and if you greet your brothers only, in other words, the people that you see eye to eye with, the people that you have a good time with, the people that are your family, the people, your brothers in Christ, what do you do more than others? And the answer is nothing. Everybody does that, right? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And the answer is yes, they do. 48, therefore, you are to be perfect which means complete or whole, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I submit to you, until you are ready to do good to someone who is bad, you're not perfect. That passage is calling us to be like God. It's calling us to be following the God of heaven. And I get it. So here's what I'm going to tell you today. If you have somebody in your life that seems like they're turning away from God, they just won't hear about God, what do you do? Will you be good to them like God is? You provide and love and be kind. You, show, you say, but my good works, my goodness to them may lead them to feel justified in the bad behavior. I was raising my kids, and as I was raising my kids, a number of times, Alicia will tell you firsthand, we had this conversation where I said, well, I had this planned, I was going to do this good thing today, but now I can't do it because I can't reward this bad behavior. So now we're going to put that off to another day. The truth is, you don't have to worry about that. If you're raising kids, that may be an appropriate way to handle it. But with your friends and your family members and your coworkers and your students and your school, whatever, you don't have to worry about that. The witness of creation will continue. God is real and proof exists. And God will continue to bless them and he may want to use you to do that. Don't worry that they will never figure it out. That's not your problem. On the other hand, if you don't share the gospel and tell them about Jesus, that is your problem. So you share the gospel and tell them about Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you to heaven when you die. Jesus wants, has paid the price for your sins and he wants it to all be good. Jesus wants to forgive you. But I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to hold you accountable for the bad that you've done. I'm going to tell you off. I'm going to criticize you or talk about you behind your back. My God will send sun and rain alike. He will love you. He will bless you. He will fill your heart with gladness. He will let you laugh into the wee hours of the night and joy with your friends and goof off and play. He'll let you do all of that. But not me. Uh-uh. I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to tell you just how bad you've been. You see, that's not us being like God. We are meant to be blessing the world. When people come and they say they're hungry, we don't go, okay, give us a rundown of how you've behaved the last few days before we give you any groceries. Because, you know, if you've been in sin, if you were drinking last night, for example, we can't give you any groceries today. We don't do that. We provide for those who are in need out of the love that God has put in us. And I understand fully, and so does God, that the goodness of God can be used to reinforce bad behavior. Don't think that just because people continue to talk to you, people continue to... Be your transportation. People continue to serve you. People continue to do loving things toward you that they are endorsing your bad behavior. In fact, if you're worried about them thinking that, then just keep bringing up Jesus, which you're supposed to be doing anyway. 
Just keep talking to them about how Jesus died for their sin. Therein lies the conviction to be saved, not in you mistreating someone to get their attention. The points then were God created and God allowed. Also, even though God allowed the nations to go their own way, he preserved for himself a witness. Not only the witness of the testimony of how awesome creation is, but the witness of his continuing to do good, giving rain from heaven, giving fruitful seasons, satisfying you with food and your hearts with gladness. And this goodness of God can be used to reinforce bad behavior. But that brings us then to our conclusion. It's a simple one, really. God loves you. And his kindness towards you has and always will be to prove that love. He intends to bless you. Even at the worst, absolutely worst moments in your life. When you were caught off guard by some tragedy. When someone or something that you were counting on broke down and abandoned you. When you were struck to the heart by the worst of words, even at those worst moments in your life, even at the moments when you were fighting against Him, His message was clear. When you loved God, but couldn't see your way past your own grief to count your blessings, His blessings were there just the same. In the midst of your trials, when the enemy only wants you to look at what's going wrong. I had a day like this this week. Actually, I had to have a conversation with my wife as we were sitting down at night and things calmed down. I was talking to her and I said, There's a, I have a holy, H-O-L-Y, discontent. I see the way things are going. I see what people are doing. I see how what I'm trying to do is working out and, it, and nothing's working. I don't get it. I don't understand why people will not follow the Lord Jesus Christ the way God called them to do. Why service is not first and foremost on our minds and in our hearts. Why love and giving and kindness and mercy doesn't leap to the fore. Wednesday morning, I was doing my study. I think it was Wednesday morning. I was doing my study and, and I've been praising God because I've managed now to do, I think it's 35 or 36 days in a row every morning before I do anything at all. Before I get out of bed, I pick up my phone and I'm on Bible, Version Bible app and I'm publicly posting a comment and I'm studying the word every single morning before I do anything else. And then sometimes uh, three, four times throughout the day I've been doing it and I've been blessed by it and it's been helping me. But in that Wednesday morning, I did a, a study and the study was on the transfiguration. Do you know this story? There's a story where Peter, James, and John are with Jesus and they go up on the mountain. When Peter, James, and John would go up on the mountain with Jesus, suddenly, Elijah and Moses are there. Pretty cool in a way, because if you remember the story of Moses, a little aside, if you remember the story of Moses, he was promised that he would not be allowed to go into the promised land. Well, the mountain that Elijah and Moses and Jesus are standing on that day when Peter, James, and John see them, guess where it's at? In the promised land. So those who would say that Moses never saw the promised land, he was, he was corrected as a leader because he sinned against God and he could not go into the promised land, same as anybody else who has sinned against God cannot go into the promised land. But there, in the grace of God, because he believed for salvation and went to heaven with God, God allowed him to be present with Jesus on that mountain in the promised land. But then what you see happen is, you see Jesus transformed in an instant. And it says there that his robe that he was wearing became white and became white as light. I want you to think for a moment how white 
pure light is. It became white as light. And it said his face shone so brightly that it was very hard to look at. In, in many years, I've always wondered, you know, like what that would look like exactly. And I have a furnace in my house that has an electronic igniter in it. And the gas comes out, it comes on, it starts blowing, and the igniter comes on, and it's, a, it's like a metal pin that sticks up in sort of a bend like that, and it starts to glow. And about, uh, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago, it went bad, and it would glow, and the furnace wouldn't start, and it would stop glowing, and it did it three times, and then the furnace would stop trying to light, and it would just go out, and there's no heat. I'm like, that's a problem. And so I called a furnace guy. May have been wrong, I don't remember, but I called a furnace guy, and I said, you know, how do I know what's wrong? I said, well, it sounds like the igniter is bad. And I said, well, the igniter is lighting. I can see it lighting. And I said, well, what does it look like when it's lighting? And I said, well, it's, it's bright orange. I mean, what do you mean? He said, well, th- is it hard to look at? It's got a glow bright enough to be hard to look at, to be hot enough to light the gas on ignition. And now I understand. And they said the face of Jesus shone so that it was, it glowed so that it was hard to look at. And you know what Peter did? If you know this story, you do. What did he immediately do? He said, Lord, anybody? It's good that we're here, right? Peter, James, and John. It's good that we're here. He said, let us pitch three tents for you three that we see here, right? But when he said that, he fell on his face and worshiped toward Jesus. And then when he got up, what happened? Well, the other two were gone and only Jesus remained. Jesus made them swear and promise that they wouldn't tell everybody about this event until after the resurrection. But we get it because we live a long time after the resurrection, so we've heard it now. And I thought about that. I'm like, look, for crying out loud, they didn't need tents. What did they need tents for? It wasn't raining. It wasn't cold. What did they need tents for? Keep, so this is like a little boy, like Peter. He's like, oh, I love you so much. Uh, 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 I'll build you a tent. Right? You ever have a child bring you an art or a craft that they've made or a picture or a painting or something? They're like, I made this for you. You look at it and you're like, huh, that's nice. I mean, I can tell a lot of work got put into that or whatever, but it's pretty, you know, not exactly super artistic or whatever. And, but it's like that. It's, I want to make something for you. And that's the heart of Peter when he saw the holiness of Jesus as Jesus was transfigured. And so out of that, I said, well, why don't we have that heart? Why are we not wanting to serve? Why don't we get out of bed in the morning and go, I see, I've got seven things on my schedule for today. The first three things are service to Jesus. Five, six, and seven clearly are not. Four, I don't think it is. So maybe I can just cut four, five, six, and seven out of my schedule and I'll slot in some more service to Jesus. Why are we not doing that? Why is that not our heart? Because we have gone our own way. We have been enlisted by the ways of the world, the things that we like. We have not given up that part of ourselves that still wants things. It's along with us, and sometimes we're leading, it's leading us, and we're following it instead of we're following Jesus. But if you would concentrate for a moment on the holiness of Jesus, you will find in yourself a need to serve the Lord above all other things. And then when you choose not to serve the Lord, God will not bless you. Now wait, are you, have you been listening to this sermon? That is literally not what it says. It does not say when you choose to not serve the Lord, God will not bless you. It says when you choose to not serve the Lord, God will bless you because he loves you, because he's kind, because he's good. Will he discipline you and chastise you? Yes, you will be corrected, maybe even punished because he chastises. 
those whom he loves. And again, who was that? Everyone. For him, against him, doesn't matter. He loves you and he will bless you. His kindness will continue. And you'll go, I got away with it. But you didn't. You didn't. Because you lost all the fruit and all the benefit of what would have come out of it if you had done what you were supposed to do, which was serve the Lord in the first place. In the absolute worst moments of our lives, when we are straying away from God and refusing to do what God would want us to do, He is there to bless us. Even His correction and chastisement is a blessing beyond measure because He'll draw you. He will be for you even when you are against you. And there will be the greatest conflict of all. The psalmist writes it this way in Psalm chapter 8. And if you're still following along in your Bible, go there. We've got a couple, two texts left. The first one is Psalms chapter 8. Had a unique experience. I'd studied this psalm extensively and sort of fell in love with it. And then when we went to a mission trip in the UP when I was a youth pastor back at East Toledo, we stood up at the highest point that we could possibly get to on that island and read Psalm 8, and it echoed off the hills and the trees around us as we read Psalm 8 out loud. This is what it says. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who hast displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength. In other words, before, you, before I go any further with this, because you're going you're gonna to be blown away by this when you think about it for a second, it says, from the mouth of infants and nursing ba- babes, thou hast established strength, meaning from the moment you were born of the womb, you had strength to do something. From the moment you took human breath, you had strength to do something. Now let's see what that strength is. Back to the beginning so we get it all in one piece. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Do you see that? Mankind, men and women of all ages, were given from the womb the ability to rebuke the enemy and make him stop. You can say to Satan and every evil spirit and demon that ever plagues you, shut up, I don't want to hear it. But you say, well, I don't think I can. Where did it go? If it was there when you started breathing as a baby, where did it go? You went your own way. And your way doesn't have that in it. This is the way that God made for you from the womb. But you sinned against God and you did what God would not have you to do. And in that, God still blessed you. And you thought, well, I'm okay because I'm still blessed doing what I'm not supposed to be doing. But actually, you were built from the beginning with the strength of God in you to rebuke the enemy and to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Verse 3, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, there's the creation. What is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. This is what God has done. He has created. He has allowed And he has continued to bless those who took the allowing to the extreme and went away from God's way. 
And yes, we've lost some of our reserve of strength. Yes, we've lost some of our capabilities. Yes, we've lost some of the abilities that he initially made in us. And those things come back when we are born again. When we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and begin to live for him according to our best knowledge and begin to accept the payment for our sins has already been paid, we receive the grace of God and we begin to live for him as we should have in the first place with the power to rebuke and make the enemy and the revenger cease. Don't you want it? I want it. So we must do this. We must recognize God's love. He loves you. And if there is a parent in the room and you've ever seen your child or as I have with some of the teens and kids that we have in our church make what seems to be the worst possible choice and you're like, oh, my heart is breaking because I know they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not where they're supposed to be, not making the choice that's godly, not making the choice that's going to be good for them or even healthy, just wisdom, common sense choice. They're not doing, and you love them and you're like broken over the fact and you love them into it and you love them through it. And if they make it through it, you love them after it. That's the love of God. God loves you in the womb. Catch the present tense. God currently, right now, in this instant, loves you in the womb, under construction, in your mommy's womb. God loves you potty training, right now. He exists in every time, in every era, and is the same, unchanging. He exists outside time. God loves you in the womb. God loves you potty training. God loves you saying your first curse word. God loves you sleeping with your whoever out of marriage or watching adultery or engaging in other illicit sex acts that you never should have. God loves you the first time you ever took a drug that you later got addicted to. And every time you took it after that, God loves you when you're staying up too late and should have gone to bed so you can get up the next day and do what you're supposed to do. God loves you when you failed to set your alarm clock. God loves you when you cursed your mother. God loves you now. In this room, whether you are listening or not, whether you're getting it or not, God loves you now. God love you, will love you in a moment. He will love you next year. He will love you if you walk away from him. He will love you right into hell if that's where you decide you want to go. God loves you, present tense, from the moment you were twinkling in your father's eye to the moment you die and go to hell or heaven for an eternity. God loves every soul that ever chose to go to hell rather than be with him. God is love. We must recognize God as love, God his love, God past, present, future tense love. And I don't mean he used to love you and he will love you again. I mean he loves you right now in the past, the present, and the future. And that is meant to lead us to repent of sin. One time, when uh, it was Christmas time, and I'm, I'm, I've always been a, a miser, not a Scrooge. I'll spend money, especially at Christmas time or when it's the right thing to do, but I've always been a miser, and I was about 11, 12 years old, and Christmas time was approaching, and I, I, I didn't have any money. I hadn't saved up my money. I spent it all. And so I decided I was going to make a coupon book for my mom. You ever do that? Here's a hug. I'll clean my room without complaining. I'll clean out your car. I spent hours making that coupon book. It's probably middle of December. And we were stuck inside. I think the weather was really bad. 
my brother was doing something, but it wasn't making a coupon book. And then went downstairs, and I wanted to do something, and I asked my mom, and she said no. And she made me feel bad for asking. And I got mad. I went to the bathroom. I came back out, and I decided I was going to argue my point with her. And uh, I, I was kind of mean. And she got stern, you know what I'm saying? And she said, when your dad gets home, and this was the way it went in my household, I'm going to have him take his belt to your rear end. You just be expecting it because I'm, I'm fed up with this. This kind of behavior, you're disrespecting me. It's not going to happen. And I said to my mom, I said, Mom, I just spent two hours of my time, my effort, and my limited artistic skills making a coupon book for you for Christmas. I just spent two hours. And I said, now I regret it. I regret that I did that. I'm going upstairs right now to tear that up and throw it away. I wasted my two hours. I never should have made you a Christmas present. As my foot hit the bottom step, headed upstairs to my room. It's in the house I now live in. I heard my mom sobbing. And when I heard my mom sobbing, because I told her that the coupon book I had spent two hours making for her for a Christmas present was a mistake, I realized I had gone too far. And my heart sank. I didn't tear up the coupon book. God will love you right into hell if that's what you choose. But the love of our God, He loves you so much. Will you continue to not recognize that love? To not have a heart of service? To not express gratitude? Or will you, as Paul was saying, repent of all the rest of it and let Him be God of your life? Let Him take you into an eternal relationship in heaven after this life. Oh, if, if we could sample it, we'd know what decision to make. But that's not the equation. God created. God allowed. We chose a way other than God's way. Because God was not satisfied that all of those that He loved so much should be separate from Him for an eternity. He came in the flesh as Jesus Christ and died on the cross. You can't see God's love in the crucifixion? I met a man who didn't know God who went to war. While he was at war, somebody dived on a grenade for him and a half dozen of his friends. He came home and said, there is absolutely nothing that I can do to repay the man who dived on a grenade for me. Nothing. He said, but I guarantee you one thing. His wife and his children will never want for anything in this life. I'd have been dead or maimed, to say the least. If that man had not dived on that grenade, many of us would have been dead or maimed, to say the least. Now, I will live for him. I will do for him what he can no longer do for himself because he sacrificed his life so that I can live. Where is your heart? He loves you. He died on the cross for you. We're still getting out of bed each morning and we have, 
why do we have any concerns whatsoever for our opinions or for what we want or our desires or for what makes us feel good? How could we ever come to the point where our grief, our anger, or our frustration make it so that we cannot clearly see and count our blessings, which are beyond measure? Numbers that we'll never see. Repent of your sin and turn to the Lord. He sent His Son to die for sins. And He raised Him again to prove His goodness. It's no joke. I'm serious. I mean it when I say... You can live with me for an eternity after death. He proved his goodness once and for all. We also must realize, sadly, that people may get lost in their ways and they may mistake his goodness for authorization or even the success of their plans. They may mistake that to think that their alternative plans are better than the plan that God has for us. But the testimony of creation is enough. It is enough to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a God. And the fact that he has not left himself without a testimony should lead you to understand that someone has been taking care of you. We sang a song. Uh, I think it was the Sunday school song, the one that starts with, I grew up in Sunday school. I'm not sure. That said that God was at work in my life before I ever got saved. I don't know how many times I can count after I got saved that God has miraculously protected me and I've, and I've managed to make it through, but I can count several before I got saved. You know, God was saving my life from my stupidity in a knife fight where I drew the knife and they took it away from me and then tried to use it on me, jumping my little motorcycle, the CB360 that the Bristers wound up with for a while, that motorcycle, jumping it over the railroad tracks at 100 miles per hour and the needle was pegging on the high, high end of the speedometer going, and I'm half drunk on beer. God was saving my life. And now I stand here today. How could I ever come to the point where I am frustrated and grieving and can't see the blessings that I'm receiving? The next time you're in a difficult spot, you say, okay, God, show me how you're blessing me in this spot. Show me all the good that I have today so I can give you all the praise that you deserve. And of course, do not embrace the alternative plans yourself. And of course, be readily corrected by your God. And repent and recognize His love and then do it again. Start over again, recognizing His love and repenting of your sin. Realizing that people, not me, I won't allow it because I will turn to God every time. You say, not me, no more. I won't allow it. But people do get caught in their own ways and mistake His goodness for authorization of what they've been doing. That's how we get, well, I know the Bible says this is sin, but this is just the way God made me. I know the Bible says I shouldn't do this, but for this short time, I need to. You know, who would count it against me? I have one last story and a psalm and we're done. The story is this. There was a man who accepted Jesus Christ in the early days of um, in the early days of New Heights when we were on Main Street. Not the earliest days, but we were on Main Street. He accepted Christ. And the night that he accepted Christ, he was walking down an alley going home and it was late. It was after the bars had closed. And he came upon a man who was beating his girlfriend. 
And this guy was, the guy who accepted Christ was a big guy, and the guy who was beating his girlfriend was bigger than she was, but not bigger than he was. And so he stepped in. I'm a follower of Christ now. This is an injustice. I'm going to stop that. So he stepped in, and he grabbed the guy by the scruff of the neck or whatever, and he said, that's enough. And he made sure the girl got home safe, and she needed an ice pack pretty bad and whatever. And then he went home. Half hour, hour later, so a guy come knocking on his door. It was an old friend, somebody hadn't seen in a couple years. They used to drink together, party together, running all the wrong crowds together. But he's a Christian now. The guy says, I got nowhere to sleep. You mind if I sleep here? And he says, sure, you can sleep in my house. So he lets him in, locks the door behind him, goes to bed. A couple hours later, he's sound asleep in his bed, feeling like he lived for the Lord. I stopped the guy from beating his girlfriend. I'm giving a guy a place to sleep. I'm living for the Lord today. And he wakes up at the last possible moment as the guy who he let come and stay in his house for the night is standing over him with a four-inch blade about to stab him in the chest. So he wakes up, and there's this guy that he's giving a roof over his head for the night with a blade like this ready to stab him in the chest. Last second, he deflects the blade slightly. It stabs him in the pectoral muscle up here. They wrestle. He beats the guy up a little bit, kicks him out of the house. The next morning, sometime after dawn, he finds out that the guy who he stopped from beating his girlfriend paid the guy, who was his friend from two years ago, 50 bucks to kill him. They come to church the next Sunday. Stitches in his chest, right here. Nine stitches, all swollen and black and blue. And he had some other marks from the fight. And I said, how does this make you feel about wanting to live for Jesus? I mean, that sounds like this is a rough week for you. And he said, oh, no, I'm living for Jesus. And we baptized him a week later with the stitches still in his chest. Two months later, hmm, maybe four months later, something like that, it was, I think it was, uh, we were having a block party. I don't think it was the fall fest, but we were having a block party. And he was there, and he borrowed my cell phone to make a call. And I listened in on the call by accident, really. And he was selling oxycodone on my phone. So I went up and I took the phone away from it, I hung it up, and I said, um, that's not going to do. That's not living for Jesus. He had, not, he had never finished joining the church because he had had some struggles and whatever. He said, that's, that's not living for Jesus. I said, that's not going to do. That's not godly. That's not right. And this is what he said to me. And it rang so true in my ears today as it never has before. He said, you just don't understand. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I live in a real world. I have to do what I have to do to survive. I have to pay my rent. So I went to the hospital and I told them my back was hurting and they prescribed me 10 or 12 oxycodone, whatever it was, and they're worth eight bucks on the street. And if I sell those, that's part of my rent. He said, so I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do what I feel I have to do to survive. And I said, then I'm afraid you're going to have to leave. <laughs> and he did leave. He reached out to me three or four times after that over the years. And he's still out there as far as I know. And doing what he thinks is right. And I'm here to tell you today that the God of heaven loves him. And the God of heaven is still blessing him. 
Now, he's probably lost the ability to rebuke evil spirits and turn back the revenger. He's probably lost the ability to really walk in the Lord the way he should. He's probably lost the ability to spread the kingdom, to win people to Christ. But God still loves him, and God's still blessing him. And the one time I talked to him, I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing great. He said, I'm fed, and I'm happy. What did we read? God has not left himself without witness because he has provided fruitfulness of the seasons to feed your heart or to feed your stomach and gladness for your heart. This is Psalm 46 and this will be our last text of the day. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at the swelling pride, Selah, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease in the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Listen here. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And I had in my mind this picture when Satan himself, whom we have probably never met but suffered under some of his schemes, when Satan himself arrives at the day of judgment and stands before God and he makes contention over your soul, over my soul, and Satan says, I want to take Sierra, I want to take Lynn, I want to take Josh, because they lied, because they stole, because they didn't do what they were supposed to do, because under your love and their understanding of your love, you still blessed them in this lifetime. They received their blessings in their lifetime, but they did not accept you. They did not repent and turn to you. I want to take them. And Jesus says, no, no, no. They do belong to me. And in that moment... Satan himself will bow his knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. God will shut that rabid dog down. But the power to shut that rabid dog down, God ordained in you since birth. God help us. He created, he allowed. And even though he allowed, he maintained a witness for himself in being good. Giving rain from heaven and giving fruitful seasons and food for your stomach, gladness for your heart. But the goodness of God can be used to reinforce bad behavior. Don't allow it. Recognize his love. Repent of sin. Live for the one who died for you. Realize that people may get lost in their ways and mistake his goodness for authorization. But don't do that yourself. Fire up your heart of service and live for Jesus. I love you. 
At least I think I do. But this I know for sure. He loves you. And He would never see you do some of the things that you decide to do that are not in His way. He loves you too much. God help us. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, that means He tells you what to do when you do it. And Savior, that means He paid the price for your sins. But you recognize that God has loved you and is calling you to Him to live your life for Him. Then as we have this song that we're about to sing, you're going to respond and you're going to tell everybody the work that God is doing in you that you now intend to live for the Lord. That you are new today. And rebirth, God will author in you the power and the authority to rebuke the revenger. To put down that rabid dog. And if you came in here today and say, I am a Christian, I know I'm a follower of the Lord, but I also know that quite often I go into my own way, that my first thought is not how may I serve the Lord, but what can I do that's fun? Or what can I do that will take care of me? Or how can I sustain myself and my relationships? What does so-and-so want me to do? If that's you, you need to repent today and say, no, God, who has always shown me kindness and love, God, who died on the cross for me and proved by the resurrection of Jesus that there is life after this death, deserves my undying loyalty. And say no more. No more will I walk in my own way. Always will I seek the way of the Lord. Always will I take my next breath thinking about how I may serve the one who died for me that I may live. Help us. If that's you, then you publicly speak up and during the song you say, that's me. And I want to become the kind of person that will live daily for the Lord Jesus Christ. And for nothing else. You're here today and say, I need to be baptized. I'm a follower of Lord Jesus Christ. I know I'm living for the Lord, but I'm not baptized. I'm not done it the way God would have me to do it. Then you come and you tell us that. Or you say, I need a church home. This, this looks like the place where I'm going to learn and grow in Christ. I want this to be my home and I want to serve here. Notice, we reach new heights in Jesus in part by serving in the body. Whatever it might be. You respond as we sing. Ask the praise team to come forward at this time and lead us in our closing hymn. But this closing hymn is a hymn of response. It's your opportunity to respond as God is calling upon your heart, whatever it might be. As soon as they start, would you stand with me and sing this song? But if you're responding, then you don't sing. Pastor Dan here. Thanks for choosing this podcast from churchtoledo.com, New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. Check us out online at that website. You can give there. You can also give by texting GIVE to 419-419-0095. The church phone number, if you should need to call us, is 419-469-8808. And our address is 255 Hefner Street, Toledo, Ohio, 43605. That's 255 Hefner Street, H-E-F-F-N-E-R Street, Toledo, Ohio, 43605. 
Our service is on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. 6.30 p.m. Tuesday evenings we get together for Bible study as of this time. And we'd love to have you join us. Come serve with us and reach new heights in Jesus. If you're interested in becoming a member of the church, you've been listening in and you feel like God's calling you to do that, check out our website at churchledo.com and click on the link that says, what does it take to be a member? Or how can I be a member? Or can I be a member? I think it says, can I be a member of New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church? And so check us out. God bless you today as you serve Jesus and reach new heights in Jesus.